today we're going to be looking in Joshua still. The last couple weeks we've been there, and we're going to keep chugging through, seeing what we can learn. Uh, but before we get started, let's pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for the time that we have to be here in your house with your people, focused on your word, with that purpose in our minds. I pray that we would take away from the word something to put in our hearts, that we would use it to uh, focus our lives on you and grow with you, and just help us to glorify your name. And we love you so much. Amen. All right. So this morning, we are going to be looking in Joshua chapter 7. So in the Pew Bible, that's page, I think I looked and saw it's 232, if you want to turn there. Um, but as you're turning there, we need to take a look at the big picture of what's happening with Israel, and then we'll zoom in to see what's happening in chapter 7. So just as a little bit of setting up here, remember the book of Joshua is the story of Israel entering into the land that God promised. So Moses died right before they got there, and Joshua has taken over as the leader of the Israelites. To show that God was still with the people of Israel, he provided a miraculous way for them to enter the land by parting the raging waters of the Jordan River, and he allowed them to cross over on dry land. That's what we talked about last week. So at this point, God has provided them a way to get to the land, and now we're going to be moving into the section of the story where God is providing a way for them to take the land as well. They're going to take it as theirs. So to do this, they're going to have to conquer the land from the people that are already there. And in chapter 6 is the very popular story of Jericho. And we're not going to be looking at that story. It's a great story, um, but most people are a little bit familiar with it. Even non-believers have probably all heard some of the details of the Battle of Jericho. And so we're not going to look at it specifically today, but we do have to um, pick up something directly after this battle. And there's a few important details that we need to know from that battle for what we're looking at today. So remember, the Battle of Jericho is a story where the people of Israel come upon a very heavily fortified city that is protected by city walls. That is the city of Jericho. And God gave Joshua instructions that for six days, the army of Israel would march around the city led by the Ark of the Covenant, which was the physical representation of God's presence. And on the seventh day, they would march around the city seven times, and then they would sound the trumpets, the people would shout, and the walls would fall down flat. And they followed those instructions. And just as God promised, the walls came tumbling down. Which, just as a side note, is a quote that I'll never forget from an old 90s artist, Carmen. Do y'all know Carmen? And he had a song, uh, where, sorry, where, what's it called? Shout of Victory. And he says, the walls came tumbling down. And it just gives you goosebumps. You should go look it up. But anyway, so that's Carmen. So God calls the walls to fall. And he delivered on his promise. And as the people moved to take over the city, the city, Joshua gave a few instructions. They were to completely destroy the city in its entirety. And in chapter 6, verse 19, he told them one other instruction as well. He said, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That's going to be really, really important for what we're looking at today. So they weren't supposed to take any of the gold, silver, bronze, iron. All of that was supposed to be kept for the Lord. And so Joshua warned them that if they took of the devoted things, the devoted things are those metals, 
that it would bring trouble upon Israel, that there would be destruction in the camp of Israel. And so the first six chapters of Joshua are all very encouraging. God has promised the people that he has a plan for them. He has provided miraculous victories for them, and he's shown them that he's there from the beginning all the way through their campaign into the promised land. And he's made it clear that they are his people and he will provide for them. But now, as we begin chapter 7, we're going to see that we'll be looking at the first instance in this book where Israel, as always, has to deal with an issue of not listening to God. All right? So if you're in chapter 7, we're just going to start with the very first verse, okay? So uh, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And so immediately, we the readers are given something called the reader's edge, okay? We get access to information about the story that the participants do not know. So we're told that the man named Achan, I'm going to say Achan, if it's pronounced differently, I apologize, but we're going to say the man named Achan has uh, taken some of the devoted things from Jericho. And because of that, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And this is important. In case you couldn't tell from how I set up the story, from telling you what's going to happen, something bad is about to happen to Israel. And we'll look at what exactly that is in just a moment. But what's important to know before any of that happens is the fact that we already know the reason for it. Verse 1 tells us right here. We know what happened. We know the cause of what the bad thing is. We're given the reason here. Achan did not listen to the instructions about conquering Jericho. He took some of the devoted things, even though he explicitly knew he wasn't supposed to. And because of that, the Lord was angry with the people of Israel. So keep this in your minds as we look at what happens next. All right? So look at, uh, we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. It says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which was near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the people toil up there, for there are few. And then in verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from the, uh, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as she- uh, Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So Israel fails at what should be a seemingly easy victory over a small enemy. And honestly, When we look at verses 2 through 5, there have been explanations for this story all over the place. Some people say they failed because Joshua was overconfident. It was a smaller city than Jericho, so clearly they would be all right, and so their ego was what destroyed them. And then some have said that they were driven back because of a lack of prayer. The fact that Joshua didn't wait and pray to God about what to do was cause for failure. And these could be good points for the life of a Christ follower. But these explanations are not grounded in the context that we're given in the big story of what's going on with the Israelites. These explanations could be examples of what theology students would call eisegesis. And that is, they could be examples of making the text say what you want it to say 
without context. But even if what you want to say sounds nice and it sounds pretty, like the fact that we shouldn't be overconfident in ourselves or the fact that we should pray, even though those things are pretty and those are right, we are supposed to do those, we still have to remember that it is overwhelmingly important to root ourselves in the truth of the scripture, okay? And the truth is, we don't have to look at verse two through five and try to figure out ourselves what the problem was. We don't need to look around for clues as to why they failed at something that seemed really easy. Verse one tells us plain and simple what happened. Someone disobeyed the commandments of the Lord and brought destruction and trouble upon the camp, just like they were warned about in chapter six. And now the anger of the Lord is burning against them. And I bring this up because this will teach us what we're to learn from the story as we continue to look at the details. But we have to begin with the right understanding. The people of Israel failed because they were under God's, excuse me, they were under God's wrath. God's wrath is not something trivial. It is something that should cause us to tremble and fear. Verse 5 told us uh, that their hearts melted. Up until this point in Joshua, that phrase, hearts melting, has been used in the book of Joshua twice. In fact, as I was studying through Joshua, without knowing this was going to happen in chapter 7, or know this phrase was going to happen, I underlined them both, because I thought just the phrase, hearts melting, just sounded cool, and I kind of wanted to look into it later. And so it happens once in chapter 2, and it happens once in chapter 5, where the phrase, hearts melted, was used. But in both instances, it was referring to the inhabitants of the land fearing God and their hearts melting. So the people that already lived there, hearing about what God was doing with the Israelites, it was saying that their hearts melted in chapter two and chapter five. And now this feeling has turned inward toward the Israelites. Now they are scared. Now their hearts are melting because they are the ones in turmoil. That is what the wrath of God does. It makes your heart melt. And you can just imagine that feeling where you're just like, so overwhelmed and you're looking inward and you just don't know what else to do. Your heart is melting. And so knowing that about God's wrath, it should be something that actually affects us, not something that we just blow by, which is something we can easily do in today's society. And so let's take a look at the response to this failure. Remember, verse one has already given us the reader's edge. We know something that the people in the story don't. So we're gonna see here that Joshua doesn't know that information yet. So let's look at his response in verses six through nine. It says, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So here we see Joshua and the elders are incredibly distraught, right? They tore their clothes, they fell to the earth, and they stayed there till night. And they cried out to God. They said, why did you, or Joshua was saying, why did you do this? Why did you even bring us over the Jordan River? Why are we losing? What is going on? Joshua comes before the Lord and he is in despair. He's crying out to God. And Joshua, he doesn't have unbelief here. He's not doubting. In this moment of turmoil, Joshua's crying out. He's wondering. He's trying to figure out what's going on. 
And so having questions for God is not the same as accusing God. Joshua shows us quickly, in a quick example, the appropriate way to handle a difficult situation in prayer. There are questions. There is a moment of emotion. But verse 9 shows us the intent of his prayer. At the end of his cry to God, he asks a question, and what will you do for your great name? Even in this moment of loss and failure, his attention is still on the reputation of God. He is intent, his intent is still to bring glory to God. His questions, his emotions still bring him to that point in his prayer. It brings him closer to God because his intent was not to accuse him, but it was try to, or, and it wasn't to prove that his ways were better or that his ways made more sense. It was to come to God and um, genuinely try to understand. So his attention was still, what will happen to your great name? Uh, This isn't the main takeaway from the story here by any stretch of the imagination, but here is a biblical example of prayer that shows us we're allowed to have questions and we're allowed to show God our emotions. But the biggest component of these things is what is our focus? What's our intention when we have those questions, when we have those emotions? What is our purpose for those? And it should always be the reputation, the glory of God. It should always be to bring us closer. And so he's asking that. He's asking, what will you do for your great name? It looks like things are going terribly, but what are you going to do, God? What's happening here? And so moving forward, we get to the main point of what we can learn from the Israelites and what they're going through here. So let's look at verses uh, 10 through 12. And it says, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot uh, stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And so God interrupts Joshua. God interrupts his prayer and his mourning. And he says, hold up. What are you doing? I, I really just imagine like Joshua's in, he's distraught. He's in prayer. He is genuinely crying out to God. And God right here, he says, get up. What are you doing? Why are you falling on your face? What is going on here? God tells him what's wrong. Like why else do you think this is happening? Remember, since Joshua has been the leader, nothing bad has really happened to Israel. God has shown up in mighty ways. And so God is saying, you've sinned. Israel has messed up. That's why you can't stand up before your enemies. That's um, why you're devoted for destruction. And that last sentence that God uses brings up so much history for Joshua. God said, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So that phrase, I will be with you no more, it sounds very, very familiar to what God told Joshua back in chapter 1, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Uh, what is it, Joshua 1.5, it said that uh, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, it says, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So remember, God had told Joshua over and over and over in chapter 1, he said, be strong and courageous. And the way that he could trust his emotions to do what God instructed was because he told him, I'm going to be with you. I will not forsake you. 
So being able to trust in that promise, what was meant to give him the strength to move forward into the promised land, into the life that God intended for them. But this commandment was accompanied with another instruction. If you remember, God told him right along with being strong and courageous that they had to also follow the law, that they had to listen to what God instructed them to do. And it said back in chapter one, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success for wherever you go, to stay focused on the word there. And then the Bible, it says, uh, let it not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God told him, be strong and courageous. I will be with you wherever you go. But there was something that accompanied it. They had to follow the law. They had to stay focused on it. They couldn't go to the left. They couldn't go to the right. They had to think about it day and night. They had to focus on that. And that's when they would be prosperous. So that was how they were going to move forward. And God took that seriously. He was holding up his end of the promise. He said, that's how you're going to be prosperous. That's how you'll be able to be strong and courageous. And immediately, now that Israel was not obeying the law, and they were not following the commands of God's, their ways have been marked for destruction. God said, I will be with you no more until this is taken care of. And so verse 13 and 14, uh, we're not, I'm not going to read them to you, but they tell, it tells that the Israelites are supposed to consecrate themselves. And it gives instructions on how they're supposed to find the man that stole those devoted items. And so continuing, we see in verse 15, it says, And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed, sorry, transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so God finishes his instructions. He tells him that the person who did this shall be burned with fire, he and everything he has. This person broke the covenant with the Lord. He has done an outrageous thing, the Bible says. And God is taking it seriously. They have to take this egregious thing that happened and completely remove it for themselves before God will join with them again. The man and all he owned had to be burned with fire. And I know we've read a lot this morning. This chapter is pretty lengthy, but the end of the story is where we're able to take what we can from the story and see what we can learn about ourselves today. So Joshua and the people follow the Lord's commands. They finally find Achan the man that we were told about in verse one. And they go through and they find him. And Joshua says, tell me, what have you done? Don't lie to me. And so moving forward in verse 20, after they found him and Joshua says, don't lie to me, tell me what you've done. This is what the Bible says. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw, uh, when I saw among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so he admits to what he's done. They find him. He admits to it. And it was one of those sins where he thought no one was going to find out. And in fact, he went through a lot of trouble to make sure that they didn't find out. He dug a hole and put the devoted things under his tent. And what a comparison that we do in our hearts, Right? How many of our sins do we try to hide? How many of our sins do we go through all kinds of work to try to make sure that nobody else knows? To keep them hidden away from people. We clearly know that we're not supposed to do them. Akon knew so very clearly that he was not supposed to take the, those things from Jericho. We know that. 
We know that because one, no one else took anything. Out of all the army of Israel, exactly one person took something. They all knew the commandment. Achan wasn't just following his buddies and said, oh, well, they're taking something. I'm going to take something too. That's not what happened. He was the only one. And two, he literally tried to bury the evidence. He tried to hide, and he did a lot of work to try and hide it. But there is a phrase used in the Bible about sin that we should all take to heart. Back in the book of Numbers, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, a situation of someone sinning came up, and in Numbers 32, 23, it says, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide from it. You can't keep it a secret. When we sin, we are sinning against an omniscient God. Our sin will find us out. Psalm 139.3 says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows all of our ways. He knows everything about us. We cannot keep anything from the Lord, even the sins that other people don't know about. God still knows us. We can try to bury them in the ground. We can bury them under our tent. But God sees right through that. And the thing is, it causes destruction. Even if it's one sin, one sin that maybe no one even knows about, it still causes eternal destruction. It still is breaking covenant with God. And so looking back at our story, we see that they go find exactly what Akon admitted to have done. You're going to see that they go to the tent, they dig it up, they find it, and they find it under the tent. And this is the part where we're going to learn the most, I think. So verses 24 through 26. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, what did you, uh, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire and stone, uh, sorry, and They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Accor. Wow. It's honestly kind of hard to read that. It's honestly kind of tough. Joshua and Israel, they take Achan and his goods, his family, and everything they own, and they burn them and stone them. They completely destroy them. And I can't pretend to completely understand why God chose this method to address this issue. In our modern minds, that seems incredibly harsh. And I don't want to back away from that because that's what's in the Bible. That's what's there. But there are two incredibly important things that I know that we can take away from this story and the example of a con. The first is that sin is a very big deal. Sorry. Thank you. The first is that sin is an incredibly big deal. The severity of the judgment here, the stoning and the fire, the severity of that indicates the severity of what sin is. We today generally have a very tame view of sin. We have no fear. We have no paranoia over this contagious issue. We seem to think that our sin in our lives isn't a very big deal. But 1 Joshua 1.18 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We can even convince ourselves that we don't have sin sometimes. We can say, I'm pretty good. I live a pretty good life. 
I'm not doing anything to hurt anyone. I'm not rude, really. I don't say things that hurt other people. Uh, Overall, my life is definitely more good than it is bad. But listen, the the sin of one man out of all of Israel still caused incredible destruction. And so it is for us. Even just one sin out of all of our life can still cause incredible destruction. And God hates sin. Psalm, 40, uh, sorry, Psalm 45, 6 and 7 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hate wickedness. He hates wickedness. The sin in our lives is a big deal. Even if others don't see it, even if we feel like the sin in our lives doesn't hurt or affect anyone, sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. We're all probably familiar with Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then James gives us a very adept summary in James 1.14-15. Listen to this. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is not something that we can look at and say, meh, I'm not that bad. I'm really not. And our story and Joshua, we don't know exactly how many made up the people of Israel here, but we do know that there were at least 40,000 men ready for war before the battle of Jericho. We're told that in chapter four. So no matter how many there were, Achan at the very least was just one man and 40,000. So that seems so insignificant. That seems like that really shouldn't be that big of a deal. One person out of all of those uh, men that were in the army, but it was. Our story shows us that just one sin, just the one person, just that one breaking of God's commandments was enough for God to say, I will not be with you. And we cannot stick with the view that sin is not that big of a deal in our lives. The consequences of Achan's actions show us what a dire situation sin puts us in. The severity of how they had to separate themselves from Akon shows us it is a big deal. And this isn't just an Old Testament view. Look at what uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus' own words warn us of the severity of sin. Whatever our sin is caused by, the eye, the hand, the tongue, whatever it is, we should be willing to part with those things because how much worse it is to end up in hell. How much worse the consequence is. And I cannot stand up here today and allow us to miss the point of this story with Achan and the anger of God. Sin separates us from God. Sin breaks covenant with God so that we are not his people. But listen, I also can't stand up here today and just preach doom and gloom, okay? Sin is important, and we have to regard it with the truth of what it truly is, of what it really does. It cannot be something that we have a flippant attitude about. But let me direct us to the second point that I think we need to take away from this story. Because in this story, believe it or not, I see a really loving act from God. And honestly, I expect some of you to look at me like I'm crazy. Because how in this story could we possibly see a loving act from God? 
that it doesn't, if you just look at the face of it, it doesn't really look like there's something loving from God here. But let me direct you back to verses 10 through 15. To see the loving act, we have to take a higher view and look at the picture. In these verses, God tells Joshua that Israel has sinned. All right, we're going back to right after Joshua was uh, on the floor. He was uh, mourning and he was crying out to God. And in the verses 10 through 15, God tells Joshua that Israel has sinned, that he will be with them no more if they don't destroy the stolen things, and that the man responsible should be burned. Those are the details. But when I take a look at the bigger picture is when I see the loving act. You see, God tells the people what's wrong. He doesn't allow them to remain in sin. He doesn't allow them to be comfortable with sin, no matter how minuscule it may be. God tells Joshua and the people about their sin and gets them, he tells them how to address their sin. And just like in the story of David, if you remember, when he sins against Uriah by taking his wife and arranging his murder, God doesn't allow David to sit comfortable either. In 1 Samuel 12, he sends the prophet Nathan to force David to face his sin and deal with the consequences. And God has done the same for us. And the absolute greatest gift possible, God does not leave us in our sin. He has sent his one and only son to provide a way for us to address our sin. In his most loving act imaginable, God sent Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice. One of the all-time most popular verses, John 3.16, really summarizes that really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the greatest love act that God could ever give us. And in Romans 10, 9, it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So God has given us a way to address our sin and in a severe way, how to treat our sin. Achan and everything he owned in the story of Joshua had to be burned and completely removed from the body of Israel. And for us, it's the same with our sin. We're told multiple ways and multiple places that we have to run away from it. In 1 Timothy 6.11, we looked at this in Bible study last week. It says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. It's talking about sin. Flee these things. Get away from them. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We have to run away. It's the same as what the Israelites had to do with Achan. They had to completely be cut off from it. That's why the punishment was so severe. They had to, we have to run away from our sin. It's not something that you can just walk away or turn away from. We have to run. We have to flee. We have to flee and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness and faith and love and gentleness. And then Galatians 6, 15, or sorry, 5, 16 tells us, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We have to walk in the Spirit so as not to gratify our flesh. God loves us enough to show us how to address our sin. He doesn't leave us in it. And without his loving acts, we would be hopeless. Just like the Israelites would have been. They would have been completely cut off. God said, I will not be with you anymore. But we are told how to deal with it. We would be doomed. Because even as we see in Joshua, even the smallest of sins is enough to separate us from God, even the smallest. 
but he loves us enough to provide a way for us to fix our relationship with him and return back to him. As Michelle comes up, as we finish looking at this, we see that even the smallest separation from God is enough to doom us to a terrible, terrible eternity. But just as we see in this story, even though it's not evident, even though it's not super clear and just jumping out at you that there's a loving act from God, there, we have a loving act from God. The most generous gift possible is that God sent his son and gave a perfect sacrifice for our sins and that we have access to that. And so I pray that we would not forget this, that he has loved us enough that no matter what's going on in our lives, sometimes we're dealing with hard things and we don't feel like God is looking at us. We don't feel like God is loving us, but God does. He, no matter what we're going through, this fact will always be true, that he has given us Jesus Christ. He has given us a way. He has given us a pathway to himself. And so, guys, I just pray that that is in our hearts that we would go through life, we would go through day to day, and not just flippantly thinking about sin, that I'm not that bad, I'm I'm doing my best, I'm just, I'm okay. I hope we don't have that attitude. Sin is severe. Sin is a big deal, and we can't just, even though it's just in our heads sometimes, and we think thoughts, and we just realize, like, it's not hurting anybody, I'm not doing anything to anybody. It's still a sin, it's still there. Even the smallest is enough to separate us. And so I pray that we don't have a flippant attitude about sin, that we realize that it's severe, and that we would realize that God has given us the greatest gift to deal with that, and that we have instructions, we have the Bible to show us how to deal with that. And I pray that that would be on your hearts this week as we go out and try to live our lives to glorify God, that we would let that affect us, if that makes sense. That we would let that change our hearts, that we would let that change our minds, and change our actions so that people see the difference, that we stand out. I, I don't really know how to make this seem like such a big deal, but in a Sunday school a couple weeks ago, Troy said one word that has stuck out to me, and it's the word different. Christ followers are meant to be different. And this is how we do that. And so I pray that that takes a hold of us and affects us in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And just join me in prayer as we continue. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this story in Joshua that shows us, even though it's not super apparent, but that you have loving acts. And God, thank you for showing us that sin is so severe. And I pray that that would be in our hearts. And I pray that it would take effect, God. And help us to take advantage of the fact that you have given us a gift through Jesus that you have given us a gift in his sacrifice and that it would change our actions and change our lives, God. Help us to do everything we can to live a life for you. And God, we just love you so much. Amen.